Beloved in Christ, our minds are always busy. We're always thinking, planning, and reflecting. A lot of the time, of course, our minds are busy with what's right in front of us. This duty in the home, this project at work, this person I'm talking to. But there's many other moments when our minds are free to wander. We're walking around the lake, driving to work, or sitting back and relaxing somewhere. What's on our mind then? What fills our thoughts? That's an important question, because our thoughts have so much to do with the kind of people we are. Our direction in life is being shaped by what we desire. Our priorities are driven by those things that we hope for. Whether for better or for worse, we're molded by our mind. There's an American writer, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, you become what you think about all day long. Jesus had his own wisdom on this matter when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The goals that we set before us, the objects that we make our treasure, these shape our heart, which in turn sets the tone for our life. So what are we setting our minds on? Where are we looking? Consider the direction of your thoughts. Are they heavenward and Christ-centered? In our text, the Holy Spirit says that Christ's ascension into heaven needs to give us a new perspective on life. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. The Spirit wants us to look up and to view all of reality under Christ, our ascended King. If you've ever used a compass, even one that's on your phone, you'll know that the needle always points north. Whichever way you're facing, you always know where north is. Like that, our thoughts should always be directed toward Christ in heaven, because then that's the way our life will be directed too. I preach God's word to you on this theme. Seek those things which are above where Christ is seated. You are living in Christ, so you should not seek what is on earth, but set your mind on things above. You are living in Christ. Who is the you in our text? If then you were received with Christ, or raised with Christ. The first you reading this would have been the Colossians. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, in Asia Minor. We don't read in Acts that Paul ever visited this town on his missionary journey, but he did go to nearby Ephesus. Colossae was in the same river valley as Ephesus, and during Paul's time there, one of the new believers was keen to share the gospel. This fellow, Epaphras, had brought the good news to the Colossians, and they received it gladly. The years went by, and Paul found himself in jail somewhere, likely in Rome, but there wasn't much that could stifle his deep care for the churches. He was still their pastor and teacher, so from prison, he sat down to write a letter. If we glance over the letter to the Colossians, we see there's two things Paul's trying to do, and they're closely related. The first is to warn the Colossians against a heresy or false teaching that was floating around those days. We don't know all the particulars, but one part of it was that favorite old heresy called legalism. Legalism is that belief that God will be good towards us if we stick to some sort of code of conduct if we honor a set of guidelines or traditions. God loves us because we're good at keeping the rules. 
legalism or the righteousness based on our own works or contributions is a dangerous idea for lots of reasons. But the one especially terrible side effect is that it makes Jesus Christ unnecessary. Who needs Christ on the cross or Christ ascended if you can basically pull yourself out of the muck of sin through a mighty effort and a strict life? Who needs the good news if you've got goodness of your own? So to counter the false teachers and to emphasize the truth for the Colossians, Paul does a second thing in the letter. He puts the spotlight on Jesus. He insists on the centrality of Jesus, the one basis for our redemption. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul heaps up praise for Christ. He's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. In him, all things hold together. Christ is the head of the church. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. Because all that we need to know about God, he's told us in his son. This Christ, Paul says, has rescued us from the power of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of light. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. At the beginning of our chapter, Paul sums up what he has said before, if then you were raised with Christ. He's reminding us again that believers in Christ enjoy a fundamental union with him. Our union with Christ by faith means that every good thing and every high position that belongs to Christ danger of looking up. God says is also ours. Every perfect work that Christ accomplished on earth, God says we also accomplished. We're even joined to his death on the cross, so we don't have to die for sin. And we're united with Christ in his resurrection, making our life new by his power. We're raised with him. You'll notice that our text starts with an if, and we usually take that to be an uncertain word if it rains tomorrow, or if I do well on that exam. But the way it's used here doesn't express any uncertainty at all. The Greek could actually be translated like this. Since it is the case that you have been raised with Christ. By faith in Jesus, everything has already been accomplished. The settled fact of our life as believers is this. You have been raised with Christ, the one who is now seated at God's right hand. You have died with him. He is your life. So when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Because all that is so, for us there's a great consequence. In chapter 3, Paul is moving from what we have in Christ to what we should do for Christ. From promise to obligation, we might say. This isn't legalism sneaking back in. Rather, it's our new goal in life, our new desire. Jesus granted us redemption from sin, setting us free to live for him. A couple verses later, this marvelous truth about union with Christ is underlined again. It says in verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a beautiful image for how you and I are joined to Christ. We're hidden or recovered in him, concealed in his glory. It's like the comparison that Jesus once made about his earnest desire for Israel to be saved. He said he wanted to shelter them under his wings and keep them safe like a hen does with chicks. Those young ones are hidden with their mother where they can enjoy all the benefits of her warmth and protection. That's how closely we're connected or united to Christ in faith. Our life is immersed in his life, hidden with him, and we are totally secure now and always. 
All this means that as God's covenant children, believers in Christ, we undergo a change of identity. We've got a different kind of life than an unbeliever does. We've been given a new purpose. We have a changed outlook. This difference shouldn't be surprising to us because Christ himself didn't fit in with the world. That's what John says in his first letter. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. An essential result of being hidden in Christ is that we don't belong to this world. And this means, as we're going to see in a moment, we have to take a different attitude toward all the things around us. The Colossians believed in Christ. They'd been raised with Christ. But their minds and hearts were still absorbed with earthly matters and earthly ways of thinking. So Paul urges them not to get hung up on worldly things, whether it was the man-made rules of legalism or the devil's temptations or the idols all around them. And the Spirit gives exactly the same exhortation to us. If you have been raised with Christ, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, then look up to him. Lift your hearts on high where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. That brings us to our second point. So you should not seek what is on earth. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. If we've been following the train of thought of this letter, then this challenging command in verse 2 is expected. We just said that God's children have a new identity. Jesus' blood has redeemed us from the bondage to sin. We've been raised up in his resurrection. Because we belong to the Lord, our outlook on this world will be completely different than if we didn't know Christ. Actually, you'll see that Paul has been reminding the Colossians of this very thing. He's been pointing them to the misery that they've left behind, the futility of sin. They have died with Christ, and so they have died to the basic principles of the world. That life is over for them, which is why the Colossians shouldn't obsess over the rules and the regulations that they love so much. Jesus didn't set them free for that kind of joyless life, a life of forbidding every pleasure and regulating every moment. Neither should the Colossians make the opposite mistake, think that their sin doesn't matter. Listen to what the Spirit says in chapter 3, verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anything that belongs to the earthly style of life has to be stopped. Again in 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If you know Christ, then you have to be separate from this. The basic principles of the world, the ways of sinful man, isn't the kind of life God saved us for. So the Spirit says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It's a clear statement, isn't it? No more earthly things. Just give me the heavenly. Yet, as God's people, our relationship with the world is complicated. By complicated, I mean it's not as straightforward as selling our earthly goods, moving to a commune in the wilderness where there's no Wi-Fi or other contact with the outside world. We're still here. We can't withdraw like the monks and nuns of a previous time. Just as Jesus prayed to his Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. John 17, verse 15. This is why in another place the scriptures describes us as pilgrims. In Hebrews it says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Pilgrims are travelers. 
We're here for a while, but ultimately, we're passing through, on our way to someplace better. And if a pilgrim has many miles to go, he doesn't want to be burdened by anything useless. He doesn't want to get entangled with things that don't help the journey. He wants to travel light, and so should we. Now, we don't stop working. We don't stop going to school. We stay occupied with the daily requirements of this life, eating and drinking, earning money, maintaining relationships, keeping our homes. It looks like an ordinary life, as that of your neighbor, busy with this world and everything that comes with it, but actually not, not busy with everything of this world. Our thoughts are lifted up because we have a different purpose and a different master. The old life should have no hold on us, no appeal on us. We have a new center and a new orientation. So as believers in Christ, we must learn not to care. Learn not to care about this culture's idols or its values or its approval. Don't care about what it offers. Don't feel that you need to keep up with its standards of success or beauty or happiness. For followers of Christ, the best news is not that the economy is improving or that a new iPhone is coming out or that your favorite sports team is winning. A Christian says the best news is the good news, the gospel of our salvation, that we have peace with God through his Son. Set your minds not on earthly things. This means recognizing that even if we're making money, achieving things, building a family and a career, such activity always needs to be for Christ. We understand that what we can taste and touch and count will never give us satisfaction apart from him. These things are only temporary. Being focused on our own agenda is only going to end with disappointment. Set your minds not on earthly things. We need this exhortation because sin still has a powerful magnet pulling at our hearts. That's why the Spirit needs to say, put off all of these. Evil desire, greed, uncleanliness, anger, unkindness, dirty language. These things can occupy us. And if not these, then our thoughts can be busy with many other things. We can be fostering pride in our mind, or we can be cherishing some bitterness because of what someone did to us. We can be letting our minds wander into sexual fantasy, or we can let it, be letting it grow mean-spirited, or angry, or jealous. Or perhaps we're spending time with people or going to places that we shouldn't, or being busy with things that have no value, activities that we honestly cannot receive with thanksgiving or consecrate with prayer. Why waste your time on these things? Why waste our energy? We become what we think about all day long. If we let garbage fill our mind, garbage is what comes out. If you treasure worldly things, then that's where your heart will be also. We're here on the earth. Christ said that he won't take us out of the world. So we shouldn't expect that the world, so we should expect that the world is going to interfere. We should not be surprised when our minds get hit with loads of spam and junk mail and static and bombarded with propaganda, temptation. It's going to happen. But knowing this, we should consider what blocks our vision of things above. On this earth, what is it that ties us down, hinders us in our holiness, and keeps us from doing the will of Christ? Are we really setting our mind on things above where Christ is at God's right hand? The church father Augustine once said, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. I'll say that one more time. Christ is not valued at all 
unless he is valued above all. The Lord Jesus cannot be an addendum to a satisfied and settled life. He's not an appendix to the main work that we're busy with, which is living for ourselves. No, Christ changes everything. Our attitudes, our desires, our convictions. If we know Christ, then we set our minds on things above. That's finally what we'll focus on, setting our minds on things above. It's natural for us to look down. These days, we're always looking down at our phone, or we're looking down at our work. Sometimes we're looking down because we're discouraged. But we should look up, seek those things which are above. We find similar commands in the Bible. Think of Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. There he's making a confession of sins to the Lord, and he exhorts his fellow believers, let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have sinned and rebelled. He knew God's people are tempted to be only sorry outwardly, but for God to have mercy, we have to truly repent. That takes a heart lifted up to heaven. David's prayer is similar, Psalm 143. He seeks the Lord so that he might teach his wandering servant. David prays, make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. To God he lifts his soul, wanting his help and guidance. Earthly wisdom will not do. So when the Spirit says, seek those things which are above, he wants us to be wholehearted and earnest in seeking after God. It must become our constant thought. In verse 1 it says, seek those things. And in verse 2 the verb has become stronger. Set your mind on these things. This describes a reorientation of our mind. It's not an occasional thought for us. It's got to be a preoccupation. It's the compass point for our lives. That's where we want to go. And what are we seeking? Remember, the main character, the main focus of Colossians is Christ, exalted and glorified in the heavens. He's the constant quest of our life. We have to learn to look to the Savior unceasingly and undoubtingly. Constantly, we have to seek out and depend on the one who gave himself on the cross. Every day, we must look to the one who conquered death and fixed the eyes of our heart on the one who's now ascended into heaven. Because for sinners, he's our only hope and our greatest joy. See how the Spirit in verse 1 reminds us about where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. When Jesus ascended, he went to that place God promised him in Psalm 110. The right hand is a position of privilege and power. He's there to rule. He's there to intercede. He's there to share the gifts of heaven with us on earth. With Christ at the right hand of God, our whole perspective changes. We don't cling to what's earthly. We don't treasure the treasures of the world. But neither do we give up on this world or say that life here is pointless. Remember, our life is hidden with Christ in God. We're still busy with things below, but the decision about the goal and direction of our lives has already been made. Christ, our ascended King, has given us a job to do. We want to seek his, seek his rule and authority in all our daily living. For each and every part of this earthly life, we need to zoom out from the pressing and the immediate so we can consider the global and the panoramic. We should pause often and ask, what am I here for really? What does our heavenly King want us to do? Every day we need to fix our gaze upon him. So it says in Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because if we're looking to him, 
our life takes on that new direction. It's like what everyone learns in driver's training. If you let your eyes linger on something too long, like the accident on the other side of the highway, that's where your car can tend to go. That kind of change in direction is not good for driver safety, but it is good for the life of faith. When we keep looking to Jesus, we'll linger less on the attractions around us, and we'll start veering towards him. And if we look to Christ, then we also have to look to his word. Set your mind on scripture. It's the book from heaven entrusted to the church on earth. Seek its truth and power. When we're busy with the word, when we're learning its promises, studying its commands, knowing its stories and its sermons, it's these things that can shape our life, mold our thoughts and give us our new desires. It's by knowing and believing the word of Christ that we are changed into the image of Christ. Like Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For Christ can do that, even in us, who are still so worldly in many ways. He can renew our minds, transform our thoughts. By his spirit and word, he can lift our gaze from things below, and he can help us see all things as being in him, and through him, and for him. That's the wondrous thing. While we live here on earth, we're already linked to heaven. We have a king above, the savior who is seated at God's right hand. Because he is our glorious head, we can rest in him. He has gone before us to secure our inheritance, to secure for us the one thing that will last forever. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the note of hope on which our text ends. Christ has ascended. Now he's seated at God's right hand. But soon, he is coming again. Right now we're hidden in Christ, so that on his day we can appear without terror before God's throne. So lift up your hearts and seek him. Set your mind on things above. Make Christ your joy, your delight, your treasure. Love him your ascended Savior, and your King. Amen.